You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. Hey everyone, I've got a great episode for you here today. Uh, we got the opportunity to talk to one of the real legends of natural products, Professor Bill Fenicall from Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. Um, Bill's a pioneer of marine natural products, getting into the ocean and looking for molecules from the very, very beginning of the field. Uh, I learned a lot, so much history from this conversation about why the ocean was basically unexplored until the 70s and how diving was the catalyst of that. Um, we also talk about his move to microbiology, about drug discovery and why it's so hard to succeed. And uh, we talk uh, about an ongoing project I've been working with him on as an exploration to the secondary metabolism of some more novel marine bacteria. You know, I first met Bill as a postdoc working under Brad Moore on the Salinas Bora project. Um, so this is pretty comfortable territory for us. And I'm, I'm grateful to be working with him and so happy we got the chance to record this conversation. Uh, I also want to note that this episode will be monumental. It's the last episode with Allison as my co-host. Uh, we recorded this an awfully long time ago, and she's been in her new job for a long time now, but I guess you all might not know that. So retroactively, please wish her all the best of luck in her new and uh, her new now old endeavors. Um, I have one more episode that'll be out next where I'm co-hostless, and then I'll be introducing my new partner, who, if you're listening carefully, you might already know about. More on that later. But now, here's the great Bill Fenicall. Hey, Allison. Hey, Dan. So, Allison, I'm really excited today. We have, by far, I think, one of the, the most uh, decorated and uh, legendary natural products people. <laughs> He's making a face. Um, <laughs> talking to us today is uh, Bill Fenicall uh, from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So, uh, really happy to have you here today. There's a couple of things I want to uh, make sure that we talk about. Um, you have a JGI project going uh, with us that we want to talk a little bit about. It's sort of early stages, but um, I think uh, you know that is emblematic of some of the research that you've been doing the last couple of years. And um, I, I really want to make sure that we talk about your uh, place in the field because you've you've been at this for a while, and um, I think you're you're uh, definitely one of the people that that shaped the field early on. So uh, here we go. So maybe we start with um, what's your what's your origin story in natural products? How did you get started in this area? Yeah, well, thank you, Dan. Uh, I was actually trained as a synthetic organic chemist. Uh, mm -hmm. My PhD is in synthesis, and I, of course, love organic molecules and uh, get excited about chemistry. But at some point in time, you know. Uh, being a Californian, uh, I looked out and, and saw the ocean and thought to myself, what's going on with the organic chemistry of the ocean? And I was shocked to find that there was almost nothing. Now, this is back in the 1970s. So I thought to myself, maybe I can use my background in chemistry and start to do something to discover what's going on with the organic chemistry in the ocean. And that was the beginning of what I wanted to do with my career. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to really make that happen, I kept looking for open jobs that said we want a chemist to study the ocean and 
I didn't find a single job advertisement. <laughs> so one day I decided to really be more aggressive. And I came down to Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which, of course, is part of the University of California, San Diego. I walked into the director's office, asked him if I could speak to him. And I said, you know, I'm here to find a job. I would like to do something completely new, and that is to begin to study the organic chemistry of life in the sea. And he looked at me and he said, you know, this isn't how it works. We decide <laughs> what we want to do, not you. So, but I said, you know, I want to do something you don't even know about. So he said, after thinking about it for a long time, he said, I guess, guess what? I'm going to give you nine months of salary and a lousy job, you know, with no future. And let's see what you can do. So with that nine months of salary, I really got busy and I started to create a program that involves studying, uh, researching the local marine environment. I went out and picked up marine plants. I picked up animals and I asked the, the simple question, are these plants and animals making chemical compounds in a way that's similar or analogous to what's going on in terrestrial systems with plants making toxins and so on and so forth. And in the first nine months of my job, we started to find some interesting things. And so I managed to get some grants moving and got some things happening. And we began to outline what was at that time a, an unprecedented uh, presence in the ocean of plants and animals making weird chemical compounds. Mm -hmm. The kinds of chemical compounds that people never thought they would ever see from a natural source. You know, they contain bromine, they contain chlorine. And we saw this and started publishing papers. And, you know, one thing led to another and we started increasing our ability. Uh, and ultimately, um, we went through a whole lot of different processes with plants and animals really all over the world. We used ships, we used land-based marine labs, we wrote cooperative grants with people in other countries. And it became quite clear that this was an important field evolving not only through me, but as other people mm -hmm. started to see this. And one of the things that was clear in the beginning was that it, it couldn't be anybody doing this because one of the things you had to do in the beginning, at least, you had to be a scuba diver. You had to be willing to jump into the ocean um, and, you know, go look at what's there and bring it into the lab. Uh, and I think that criterion 
explains why the natural products in the ocean weren't studied uh, mm. up until the 1970s. You know, I mean, people right. knew about plants chemistry ever since the isolation of morphine, 1870 or something like that. And so people were well aware of natural products that, mm-hmm. that were used as drugs and so on. Uh, but the ocean was something that was unfamiliar, foreign, required a degree of adventure that was different from wandering through a rainforest and picking up a mushroom. Uh, It required, I must say, a couple of times risking your life in order to find something to work on uh, (laughs) and bringing those kinds of things into the lab. Were you a big diver at the time? I had begun diving well when I was a teenager, about 15. Okay. I grew up in Northern California, and we'd go down to Monterey, the Bay Area Monterey, and go diving there. So this was always in my background. I never thought that I could combine a training in chemistry with a hobby of putting your head underwater. But uh, thankfully, that worked out. Uh, And I spent, you know, 30, 40 years diving all over the world and and bringing samples into the lab for study. Mm -hmm. Where were you uh, on the the timing of that compared to some of the other guys um, that are no longer with us, like uh, Dick Moore and Paul Scheuer, uh, 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 John Faulkner? Yeah, we were all contemporaries. Um, you know, I think Paul Scheuer was a, a little ahead of, of most of us in that he came from Europe um, right. and uh, went to the University of Hawaii and immediately started thinking about marine toxins and things like that. There were people there working on toxic marine life. And so he began to think about things. Uh, and of course, uh, Dick Moore, became a postdoc with him and then ultimately um, settled there as well as a faculty member. But we were all together. There was even a degree of, um, I would say, competition between all of us about, you know, who could really do something exciting? Who could find the big, interesting things in the ocean? And, you know, I would point out there was almost nothing known, absolutely nothing known. Uh, which was exciting, but also somewhat frightening because, you know, when you begin to dedicate your entire career to do something, you'd like to be sure that something's going to work. And, you know, and fortunately it did. And of course, we now know that the ocean is as complex or even more complex chemically yeah. than any of the rainforests that have been described in such detail. Um, Allison, feel free to jump in with questions, yeah. but otherwise I'm going to, I'm going to ask things all day. <laughs> I wanted, yeah. I wanted to ask, you know, did scientists at that time just think that the ocean was kind of like a, a desert that, or that there were certainly there was marine life. There were fishes, coral, etc. But they just didn't 
make interesting chemistry? It, it, it seems hard to believe in retrospect. Well, in, in 2021, absolutely hard to believe. But, you know, when you go way back, you think about the history, uh, you know, diving, the capacity for diving only evolved in, the, in World War II with the invention of the, 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 the demand regulator by a guy named Jacques Cousteau and Yves Mognon. Uh, and that led to ultimately, not in the 40s, but really in the 50s, led to a little more um, common uh, use of scuba and, you know, uh, very crude early equipment was produced that, that sometimes failed while you're trying to dive and that sort of thing. So it's not, you know, unsurprising. This took a while for things to happen. You know, there were opportunities to collect marine animals, for example, by dredging and all these kinds of, of techniques. But the ocean was just not considered to be of any significance. Uh, and, you know, it, it was because people didn't understand the ocean very well. Mm -hmm. And oceanographers never had the kind of interest that we had. You know, when you talk about marine chemistry, people talk about what are the elements in seawater? What's the concentration of calcium and so on? And what difference does it make? The idea that you would say marine life make organic molecules for survival. Mm -hmm. The idea you would say that and then try to prove it uh, was just not known. And, and the first time I made that comment here at Scripps to our very, very well-known and accomplished ecologists, they said, oh, come on. What are you talking <laughs> about? And now we know. Now we know. After years of young students who can use chemistry and can also study ecology of the oceans, we now know that organic molecules in the ocean are the foundation of communication by chemical means, of survival by providing deterrence and, and rendering some organisms just simply unpalatable. And we know that this is one of the major adaptations in the ocean. So it took a while to convince those people of that fact, however, a long time, 10 years. Hmm. Wow. It all happened so fast. I mean, in, in terms of human evolution and, and knowledge, you know, like discovering that the ocean is a, a really vibrant, vital place in just, well, it, I don't know, I don't know if years. it happened that fast, Allison. Right, right, right. <laughs> I know. You know, I mean, a lifetime. I was there banging on everybody to try, try and make that point. Uh, I think it took 15 to 18 years before we were able to convince the, the diversity of marine ecologists that they needed to consider chemical impact on species interactions 
communication, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but ultimately, they bought on. So now we have the Journal of Chemical Ecology mm-hmm. that has a marine component. Um, and really, the community out there now understands this fact very well. So if I, would you like me to continue about this sort of historical overview? Uh, yeah, whatever you have to say. I, I wanted to um, maybe touch on something you said earlier. You, you talked about competition in the field. And, uh, you know, my, my understanding is that, well, it, it was very competitive when I was, you know, in graduate school too. And, and I think some of that's changed now. My perception is that a lot of that competition was driven by drug discovery and you know the the money that's that's available there when you find something. I wanted to get a sense of, from you if well if that's true, but also um, you know in in your research, I think I've always had the perception that you're as interested in the chemical ecology side of things as you are in the drug discovery. Though you've had lots of success in both, and where do you see that balance in your research? Well, I think, you know, you're right. I mean, that too was an issue. What function, what utility, what kind of applications might molecules from the ocean have? In the beginning, there was absolutely no focus on anything other than what's out there. Mm-hmm. So we and almost everybody else started looking at things and doing chemical you know, structures, learning a little bit about things. And, and, and that was the excitement because we saw things that could never be produced by any uh, life on land. And that was the excitement. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Then we found, we looked at those things and we said, huh, why are they being produced anyway? It seems like it takes a lot of energy to do that. And, you know, many times we would see 5% of the weight of these plants and animals being these molecules. And so a couple of my early students were interested, you know, what are they doing in the ocean? Mm-hmm. So we started looking at <clears throat> the impact of those molecules on survival. We started doing laboratory experiments with fish, trying to see if they, if they were, first of all, were they toxic to fish? Did they then have an impact on the fish in terms of sensors? Were they sensing molecules in the ocean like this? Yeah. And we started to gather evidence that truly showed the importance of the molecules in ecology. And that took another 10 years, at least. Uh, But I had several students, and I worked with several other ecology students who today run full-fledged marine chemical ecology programs. Two of the great students are in uh, Georgia and Atlanta at Georgia Tech. Uh, Another great student is in Florida, continuing to do this kind of work. Um, So that was how that started. Students got interested that had the ability to understand uh, chemistry and 
to really put the chemistry into the ecological experimental protocols. So that took about 15 years. Of course, at some point in time, everybody said, uh, if these are bioactive, why couldn't they be utilized as drugs? If they have an impact on another organism, maybe we need to find out what that impact is. So we started finding that the molecules out there would be toxic to cancer cells. And that started something big because uh, at that time, you know, nobody knew anything about a cancer drug from a marine organism. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so we were able to then switch from financial support from the National Science Foundation to financial support from the National Cancer Institute. And that was lovely because, you know, they really saw the potential. We started showing them molecules that would impact tumors. Uh, we started working with industries, with Bristol-Myers Squibb, with Novartis, with others, and in collaborative programs with money from NCI and other programs, we started showing real drug quality in molecules. And that continued on for a long, long time. And I'm happy to say that we now have two drugs in phase three clinical trials for cancer, two different kinds of cancers. We have another drug that's in development here, not yet professionally transmitted to the pharmaceutical industry, but being developed here for melanoma. Okay. So cancer has been <clears throat> the first application, the most effective application uh, of marine micro marine molecules in general. Maybe, uh, can, can you explain to our audience uh, who might not be knowledgeable, why would marine organisms be making something that kills cancer? Sure. Yeah, well, everybody asks that question. You know, why would you predict that a molecule yeah. from the ocean might have an impact on cancer? Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> first of all, we don't know how to find things in the ocean, uh, but it is of considerable understanding when you think about the fact that when plants and animals and microbes evolve, they evolve to make molecules that improve their survival. Those molecules over evolutionary time become targeted to certain biological systems in the target organism. So if you want to restrict a fish from eating you and you make a compound, <clears throat> you want that to be effective by hitting a target in a fish. Well, what is that target? 
um, you know, we didn't know, but it made sense that the molecules we were isolating did have an impact, <clears throat> excuse me, on biological targets. So what are the targets? Well, <clears throat> they could be a whole bunch of things. When we started testing our molecules, we found the targets to be diverse, but effective. For example, we found molecules that bound to inside the cells to tubulin, these proteins that allow the cells to divide. We found all sorts of molecules with specific targets. Did we know how to find those? Not at all. We just tested and we tested more and more. Mainly, we asked the question, does this chemical compound from a marine organism kill cancer cells? If it does, we want to know why. We want to know, does it kill cancer cells better than normal cells? We want to know, does it kill only certain cancer cells? Mm -hmm. And so we worked with the National Cancer Institute, who have a panel of 60 different cancer cell lines. And we would send them these compounds. Uh, we would test them here in our lab first to see that they were cytotoxic. And then we'd send them to NCI and they would test them broadly. Uh, and they would come back and say, these look interesting. Because, you know, we didn't know anything about cancer, exact details of cancer, but they did. And they would say to us, this is really interesting. So, wow, okay, so what do we do with that? We start to develop it. We find out how much we can get. We want to get them in, into toxicity tests to see if they're good, if they can be used. The process of drug discovery, of course, is very complicated uh, and sort of by definition has to involve uh, big companies with lots of money because yeah, for sure. ultimately, you know, you're going to take your drug candidate and they're going to say to you, we want to test that in humans mm -hmm. with cancer. And that means that you have to provide uh, you know, up to maybe a hundred grams of the natural product. Uh, and that's was, was for us very difficult in the beginning because, you know, we couldn't get a lot of chemical compound from a beautiful coral reef animal. We didn't want to collect all of the animals from these beautiful coral reefs and nor could you you weren't given permits to do that mm -hmm. so this changed our style completely it changed how we do research and it moved me to ask a simple question in 19 you know, what was it, 1929, Alexander Fleming discovered a molecule called penicillin. And this was 
maybe still is, perhaps the most important drug ever discovered. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much, maybe morphine. But the, the point I'm making is that penicillin was a product of a microorganism. Right. So around 1985, I said, what are we, wh- why aren't we studying microbes in the ocean? Why didn't, don't we do that? What, what were you doing before bacteria then? Well, we were studying marine animals, marine plants, you know, things like uh, sponges and things you could collect. But when we'd find these wonderful compounds, we couldn't produce enough to put them into human trials. Even couldn't produce enough for early, what's called preclinical development. Mm -hmm. So we started asking questions about microbiology of the ocean, and it was amazing what was not known. Amazing. Uh, We said, you know, everybody, all the terrestrial microbiologists said, there's nothing new in the ocean. Everything that's in there is rinsed into the ocean through rivers and rainwater and spores flying into the ocean. So there's nothing new. Okay. That's pretty ominous because these were powerful people. These were (laughs) people that really controlled microbial drug discovery. And, you know, a guy like me with no background in microbiology said, I think we should do this. Uh, They said, you know, know, you're kind of (laughs) crazy. But there was a guy very, very experienced man named Arnold Domaine. Mm-hmm. Arnold Domaine had run the microbiology program at Merck for 40 years, uh, then retired. And I went to see him and I said, you know, Arnie, are we dumb? I mean, are we wasting our time? Are we going to find zero? And he said, Bill, go take a look. So that's what we did. We started, we went out, we did not know what to do. We did not know how to culture marine isolates uh, from the ocean. We didn't know whether to study bacteria, fungi, archaea, you know, the whole range of microbial life. So we just started out and we started sampling and Uh, You know, NCI said, with regard to our grant, okay, you know, we'll we'll let you go. Go ahead, find out. So we started looking, and we started looking uh, in the ocean in terms of what these naysayers had said. Nothing new there. Well, we started finding things that were really new. First of all, we found that bacteria isolated from the ocean required salt. Whoa, interesting. What are they doing with the salt? Well, maybe they're just balancing cells against seawater. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then we found out that when you ask that question about what they might be making, that we found molecules again that contained chlorine, contained bromine, which were characteristic of elements in the ocean. Mm -hmm. 
And so we started finding chemical compounds, again, that were different, uh, different structure types. Uh, we started amassing a collection of marine bacteria. We also studied fungi. Uh, we studied a few archaea, but, you know, those, those were not very prolific. Uh, we have a collection now of about 17,000 organisms we've isolated from uh, sediments, uh, bottom mud, all over the world. We created ways to go out, you know, 20 miles offshore and sample at 4,000 meters depth, get samples of the bottom bring it to the surface, bring it to the lab. And, you know, I worked with a man named Paul Jensen here, who's done a terrific job. He's a microbiologist. Uh, and together, we created a program that really began to bear fruit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whereas working with an animal to develop a drug was really difficult. Working with microbes to develop a drug was not difficult at all. And that's because the whole history of the pharmaceutical industry beginning in 1950 or really 1940 was based on microbial cultivation, microbial fermentation in huge quantities, 50,000 liter fermenters to produce a kilogram of a drug, for example. So we saw the option to now work on marine organisms to be able to solve the problem of supply. And this changed everything for us. We be soon began finding things that we could culture we learned how to culture. We cultured everything in seawater media. We found out all kinds of weird things. Glucose is toxic to a large number of marine bacteria. Hmm. You believe that? I mean, glucose is the carbohydrate component of, of media. Mm -hmm. So we went back and said, I don't think we can use standard media. I think we have to devise our own culture media. So we started using a whole bunch of polysaccharides, a bunch of, we, we cultured things with fish meal, mm -hmm. seaweed paste, you know, I mean, we tried really hard to, to think about what nutrients were in the ocean translate that into a laboratory setting and get things growing that maybe wouldn't have grown before. Now, I should mention that there was a serious limit in culturing that um, was called the great plate anomaly. And this is that if you take a sample of, let's say, water, and you look at it under a microscope, you know, you can probably count 2,000, 5,000 different cells, different colors, different sizes, different shapes, motility, all this stuff. But when you take that sample and put it onto a culture plate, you don't see 
hardly anything growing. Mm-hmm. And so people said, well, we've done this experiment. And, and most, 95 to 98 or more percent of everything in the ocean will not grow. On that one specific plate type, yeah. (laughs) Talk about about telling everybody to quit working on marine microbes. They won't grow. (laughs) Well, you know, they won't grow because everyone tried to grow them using pastures media. Same old, same old. And, of course, they don't grow. Plus... What people found was that, uh, you know, nothing grew in three days. And this is the standard protocol. Hey, look, we inoculated the plate. Look at this. Nothing grew. Three days, five days, nothing's growing. Unfortunately, you have to wait a month. (laughs) And then things grow. So everybody threw out everything. And this led to this negativism. That, or, that bacteria, microbes in the ocean are not culturable, which is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's what we were faced with. And, you know, when we write a grant, someone would say, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Well, you know, finally we convinced people that we could get cool things. And uh, so about the same time, we made some discoveries. This was around 1990. We made some discoveries that really looked promising. Uh, We found uh, that there were new genera, you know, these basic built, basic taxonomic group called the genus. Right. We found there were new genera in the ocean that no one had seen before. Uh, one of the important ones was something that we named called Salinospora. And it won't grow without salt water. Um, there are others. There are many others, uh, including streptomycetes, which are common soil bacteria. Yeah, we've talked about the- them a lot here. Yep. Yeah, you know, these are well, Streptomycetes is a very horrible genus because, first of all, it's not a fungus. So why would you have M Y C E S? You know, but that's historical, right? But the point I'm making is even things that key out to what you would say are classic soil microorganisms from the ocean. Half or more require salt. Mm-hmm. You know, so how do you define a, a marine bacterium? I think, you know, you define it by having, perhaps having a salt requirement, a salinity requirement for culturing. And then, of course, using modern uh, phylogenetic tools, measuring genes, the 16S gene, and comparing it with everything that's known. So Salinospora, if I can go back to that uh, for a moment, um, Salinospora is an amazingly complex marine bacterium. It is complete. There are seven 
species known now, uh, three very common ones, and they're unequally distributed around the world. Salina spratropica, for example, is only found, only found in the tropical Atlantic. Why that should be is a microbiological puzzle, but it's the case. This was one of the first ones that we worked on, first species, Salinospora tropica, and we isolated a strain that produced something extremely potent in killing cancer cells. Well, chemically, we found out what it was pretty soon. We started testing it in collaboration with the National Cancer Institute. It became clear this was something very extraordinary. Uh, we named the compound Salinosporamide A after the genus Salinospora. And we began to, to find out that this was something that was in need of being developed. In the beginning, we didn't know how to do that. I mean, we're not a pharmaceutical company. So Paul Jensen and I started a company here in La Jolla mm -hmm. called Narius Pharmaceuticals, small biotech. Uh, and that's a whole other story of biotechs, but they... The Narius licensed the compound, Salinosporamide A, from the University of California and began to develop it. And it went smoothly. Boy, oh boy, it was great. Um, they developed it. They got it into phase one human clinical trials. And it showed cures in some lymphomas even in phase one, which is just a toxicity evaluation. Right. And so this became an incredibly important discovery for us. Around the same time, we found another molecule. This time, it was from a fungal strain collected from sediments in the ocean. No, sorry, collected from the surface of a marine plant. Uh, and it, too, had something unusual that uh, we began thinking about developing. And the company, Narius, of course, which we didn't control, but which we uh, wanted to see develop our discoveries, took two compounds from us uh, and began developing it. Uh, and along the way, the biotech, you know, uh, as biotechs go, they ended up folding. True. But the compounds that we had developed with them were then moved on to different companies. Uh, so our important compound, both for cancer, both were important in cancer, uh, are, though both of those compounds were developed by different pharmaceutical companies, large companies that could afford to do all of the complex biology and production that we couldn't do. 
So 2021, we have two drugs in late phase three for both for cancer. The one from Selenospora has a drug name called Marizomib, M-A-R-I-Z-O-M-I-B, Marizomib, which is called the drug name. Mm -hmm. And it is in phase three clinical tiles for glioblastoma brain cancer, which is a very tough cancer to cure. Sure. Doing well. So, you know, we have our fingers crossed, um, right. exciting, uh, and, the, you know, what's unusual about that drug, marizomib, is that it is capable of passing through what's called the blood-brain barrier, and, and most chemical compounds do not. So, you know, if you have a brain tumor, you need a drug that's going to go into that tumor, so we were very fortunate that this drug would do that, and we're excited about the progress. The other drug from the fungal strain. Oh, Bill, maybe uh, has before you go on to that drug, can maybe before you go on to the next drug, can I ask you what is the mechanism of action? Of course. Of, of yeah, the first drug. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. Uh, we found that we found out the mechanism of action well before it went into the Narius Pharmaceutical Company. Uh, And it is an inhibitor of what's called the 20S proteasome. The proteasome in the cell is a bundle of enzymes that is used to degrade proteins, peptides, that are signaling, normally doing some signaling activities in the cell, but you don't want them to be there forever or the the cell gets over-signaled. So the proteasome basically incorporates those uh, spent proteins and degrades them. And what was clear was the proteasome inhibitor Uh, was an area of cancer drug discovery of some utility. But this was like a super inhibitor. It was picomolar active, and it was active by oral administration as well as Mm -hmm. intravenous and so on. So this was picked up right away. It was picked up by cell gene, and then Celgene was purchased by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and it is now in phase three in multiple sites, um, phase three human clinical trials. Does having or does inhibiting this proteasome uh, damage healthy cells as, as well? I mean, I guess, like, how does that affect cancer cells more than healthy cells? Yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's the massive question in cancer chemotherapy is how do, you, uh, how do you find a target in a cancer cell that is not next door in a normal cell? And, and the answer to that is most of the time you don't. Most of the time the target is a common target. Uh, 
After all, cancer cells are your cells. So what's in those cells is the same, perhaps mostly, that is in an adjacent cell that is also your cell. But what makes chemotherapy work is not that the target is unique. It's that cancer cells are metabolizing at an extremely heavy rate such that they preferentially get impacted by something that is, a, is toxic to them. So when you talk about chemotherapy, of course, you know, people suffer in chemotherapy because 99.9% .9 of cancer drugs are not so selective that they don't have an impact on normal cells, particularly your hair cells, which are also rapidly growing. The cells in the mucocus lining of your, of your mouth are rapidly growing. So cancer cells, um, however, are preferentially, um, preferentially affected. I see. Thank you. And so you were talking also about this second drug that's in development from a fungus. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is drug is called plinabulin, and it is uh, also quite active. It was discovered at Narius and then ultimately uh, passed on to another company for clinical trials. Uh, it is a selective inhibitor of tubulin, which is a protein in the cells, which is responsible for, for the division of the cell. And you can see cartoons where you have uh, the chromosomes pulling apart during cell division. And that's because they're attached to tubulin and tubulin is responsible for effective cell division. Uh, it has a novel target on tubulin. Uh, it is uh, effective in a whole different group of cancers uh, and is in phase three for non-small cell lung cancer. And I know a little bit more about it because it's being tested right here at the UC San Diego Cancer Center. So I'm a member of that center. So I know a little bit what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, um, also showing promise. Are these the, uh, are these the closest things you've, you've had to getting to the clinic? Oh yeah. You know, uh, you know, I would have loved to take, taken 20 drugs to the clinic, but there are all kinds of practical limitations to that. One practical limitation is time, right? Another practical limitation is $1.2 billion in investment. You know, I discover things, boom, they're off my plate. You know, I can't impact anything unless I would be the one providing for, you know, financing clinical trials, that kind of thing, which is impossible. Sure. So um, the average time to, to develop a drug um, more than 15 years. Uh, so we're pretty happy that we discovered this, you know, and it got developed in somewhere around uh, 
2004, I guess, something like that, and now 2021, uh, it doesn't have very far to go. You know, we're, we're very happy with the progress. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I want to mention, Dan, you know, is that uh, we've never thought that you can't culture 99.5% of what's in the ocean. We never believed it for a minute Mm -hmm. because we saw the limits of people devising how to grow bacteria from the ocean. They weren't using uh, nutrients from the ocean. They, they weren't doing uh, environmental evaluations of what nutrients are there. So we asked a couple of questions. One time we spent about a year looking at samples and revising all the media and revising methods. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time on this because people didn't want to give us any money for that, <laughs> to do that. But what we decided to do was to use bizarre media, even no media. We would take isolates from the ocean and put them onto agar surfaces with no added nutrients. You know, there's enough nutrients in agar that you don't need to add anything else. Sure. Um, So we started a a program. We took about 50 different inoculum, you know, different kinds of samples. And we went through a process of using diverse media, sometimes no nutrients, and we followed cultivations. We set up a library of Petri plates to watch what happens over time. And in the high media, high nutrient media, we saw all the same stuff, which okay. are called the copiotrophic, copious oh, nutrients. Never heard that word. Okay, cool. Trophic organisms, uh-huh. which are minor in the ocean, and they grow like crazy when you, when you do, you know, huge amounts of nitrogen, carbohydrates, all that stuff. Sure. And then we got to these media, which were much more low-nutrient media, and we watched what would happen. First of all, nothing happened in the first 10 days of inoculating the plates. Nothing happened at all. So we watched it again. We would check off the time, and here's these all these plates in this library growing, watching what would happen over time. And we started, okay, after one month, we saw a little red colony on one of the plates. One month. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Was that a contaminant or what what happened? It wasn't. After two months, we saw two yellow colonies come up on a different nutrient media or low nutrient. And over a six-month period, we found 20 strains that became visible that we took off the plates, we started to grow them, we found out <clears throat> that you could grow them in liquid media, and that the limitation was their adaptation to grow on agar. Mm-hmm. 
they had to sit there for months before they would figure out how to grow. And once they did grow, we could culture them. So, of course, we decided, what, what are these? And we, you know, did the ribosomal taxonomic approach, looking at that, which allows you to compare the ribosomal gene, 16S gene, to all other bacteria known. And these were all 20 were unknown, mm. completely unknown. They were part of the, com- the unculturable microbes in the ocean. So we looked at them carefully. We, by looking at where their taxonomic uh, positions were, we saw that many were new genera, uh, you know, very different things. Some were new orders, certainly new families. Uh, and we saw exactly how they fit into the scheme of life. It was shocking. And we were able to grow them once we had them growing. Mm-hmm. We could grow them on a variety of different media. Uh, we could get high cell densities in liquid culture. And, of course, this is when we started thinking about are these a resource for drug discovery that nobody knew about? And the answer was, you bet. <laughs> we didn't study them all because I ran out of personnel, but we studied two strains that one was a new order and one was a new family. And these two microbes produced new alkaloids different chemical types of alkaloids uh, that we were pretty excited to see. You know, nobody knew about this. Nobody had ever cultured or even seen this organism before. So this was exciting for us. So this was when we started saying, you know, we have to have the genomes. We have to look at the full picture of these. (laughs) And so we selected eight of these weird bacteria and we proposed to joint genome institute oh that's where we come in (laughs) yeah you know something about that (laughs) a little bit proposed that these are so novel so unique that we needed to ask whether they would do the full genomes for us So fortunately, the secondary metabolite component of the JGI, people interested in in this area. I know about that, too. (laughs) Yeah, you know about that, too, don't you? And so uh, we're very happy. We're in the process. We now have cell pellets, and we're uh, pulling genomic DNA out of those cell pellets. Uh, So we're about ready to send those for genomic analysis. And of course, we don't know anything about the genome composition of these kinds of things. There could be some real surprises. I mean, they're probably smaller genomes. They're gram-negative bacteria. Right. But, you know, we want to see those biosynthetic gene clusters are making these alkaloids. And we want to know if any other clusters are in uh, the six other 
that we're getting genomes of that we haven't chemically studied. Right. So, you know, microbiology in historical terms has avoided looking at some of the most rare and non-obvious microbes. You know, the pharmaceutical industry studied actinomycetes for 50, 60, 70 years, you know. Right. And, of course, they found a lot. But they didn't study many other things very well anyway, at least from what I know. So we're excited about doing a little bit more of this in due time. Well, I can say that we're all excited about this project too. Um, I'm I'm really looking forward to to seeing the data when it finally gets off the sequencers. The uh, the pandemic has obviously slowed JJ down a little bit, but I know these things are underway, and um, uh, I hope that uh, once we do get some results, that um, it'll be re- really fun to have you on to talk about them again. Be happy to do so, and you know, by that time, we've probably got some other exciting things too. Dan. Always right, yeah. <laughs> Well, Bill, it's been really great talking to you today. Uh, thanks so much for your time. And um, yeah, looking forward to, to keeping the conversation going with you. Pleasure speaking to you, Allison. Thank you very yeah. much. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you also for your historical perspective. I mean, it's so interesting to see from a relatively young scientist or trained as a scientist person <laughs> point of view. Um just how much the field has progressed. So yeah, yeah. thank you well, so much you know, for sharing that. I was trained in synthetic chemistry and I've studied microbiology for now 25, 30 years. And I can actually go give a talk at ASM in those kinds of places. <laughs> that, you know, I, can, right? I can fake it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's the fun about natural products. We get to do all kinds of crazy things. You know, I, yeah. I started in, in synthetic chemistry also, and uh, that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but uh, I found my niche and get to do all kinds of fun things. Yep. Always Bye. good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I'm Dan Udwery, and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And I'm Jackie Winter from the University of Utah. You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalpodcast.com. If you like what we're doing with Natural Podcast and you want to hear more science from JGI and its collaborators, check out JGI's other podcast, uh, Genome Insider, with my colleague Menika Wilhelm. Uh, You know, if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider too, so check it out. Our intro and outro music are by Jazzar. Please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded it. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udwary. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. I'm also on Mastodon with that name at mstdn.science. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, please email us at jgi-coms. That's jgi-comms at lbl.gov. And because JGI is a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user dash programs. Thanks and see you next time.